I believe that government needs to stay out of the way. I believe capitalism has been the one and only way to lift up people in the history of the world. We don't need to start into the socialism creep. And I think freedom rings. Welcome to the Political Notebook podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher here talking with my dad, Robert Robb, who's writing on Substack, robertrobb.substack.com. And on this episode, I want to talk about the politics of free market capitalism. Uh, that voice at the beginning was Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina and, and current candidate for president. She is more of a traditional conservative, uh, but she is currently far behind in the polls as the Republican Party now seems more animated by what's called the new right. The new right is more nationalist, populist, some might say more authoritarian, but it gets a little confusing uh, because the word conservative is still used to describe anyone on the right. So I want to talk about some of those differences uh, on this episode. Um, the first question here is just what is free market capitalism? Could you give us just a simple explanation of, of what it is and then also how it fits in with the larger worldview of, of traditional conservatism? Well, in terms of the political dividing line today, um, the critical element of free market capitalism is that capital is allocated according to markets. Um, the interaction uh, of free exchange between producers and um, consumers uh, and uh, investors and uh, producers decides where the resources go and what how they're used. Uh, that's being challenged on both the left and the right these days by what economists call industrial policy. And that's where government substitutes its view as to what is the most productive allocation of capital uh, for uh, what markets determine. And uh, that is the philosophy that underlies um, Biden economics um, as he's now happily proclaiming it. We're heavily subsidizing particularly uh, green energy projects, but other projects as well. Uh, and it's also uh, increasingly a view of what you called the uh, new right, um, uh, which feels that the market allocation of capital uh, has not produced the opportunities uh, for lower middle class Americans uh, in particular to uh, make a go of it uh, and support themselves and their families. Um, I, I believe that both left and right critique is wrong and, and there's utterly no basis to <laughs> believe that politicians and bureaucrats can make better decisions about the productive deployment of capital than uh, markets. And we've had demonstrations of that uh, throughout time. In terms of its place within traditional conservatism, um, which I would um, cite as the fusion that Bill Buckley created uh, in the 1950s and 1960s and that Ronald Reagan made politically triumphant uh, in the 1980s. Um, uh, has to do with freedom, uh, that people should be free to make their own choices with respect to the products and services that they patronize, with respect to how they deploy their labor, uh, with respect to uh, 
what they want to invest in. Uh, and uh, it's not the business of government as a matter of morality uh, to interfere with those uh, free choices of individuals in a uh, competitive marketplace, in addition to the critique that it's not the most productive way to do it. The markets will outperform uh, politicians and government uh, and bureaucrats uh, in terms of deciding what's the most productive deployment of capital. Yeah, I've been I've been thinking about this topic uh, for a while for a podcast. I've seen a lot of um, a lot of traditional conservatives, especially over the dispatch, writing uh, critiques of 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 the new right and and how, um, in some ways, they're very very similar to the to the attitudes and ideologies of the old left. Um, but uh, so. But then also preparing for this podcast, I listened to a podcast that you did uh, last summer with uh, Paul Johnson. He's got a po- podcast called The Optimistic American, and uh, you guys talked for over an hour about this philosophy of, of free enterprise um, connected to liberty, and, and then and then also some very interesting historical examples to illustrate how it works. So I, I highly encourage our listeners to to check that out. I think it's like a, a capitalism one-on-one in, in one hour Um very interesting conversation. I don't want to duplicate uh, all those themes that you guys talked about. I'll link to the episode again the, in the show notes here. Um, but I do want to sort of zero in on some of these political dynamics causing this uh, shift away from free market principles. Um, both, the, both the right and the left are moving away from from these principles. And I was, I'm, I'm interested in exploring the, the political dynamics uh, some more. Um, so, I mean, obviously, the the Republican Party has changed dramatically since uh, the days of of Reagan, which you probably say is the the heyday of conservatism in in the Republican Party, right? Yes. Um, you know, George, so George W. Bush he he shifted a little bit away from that, talking about compassionate conservatism, um, which is a move towards more active uh, government role. He increased the role of the of the federal government education, um, just for one example. Um, but he also presided over an unpopular war. We had a, a financial crisis in in two thousand eight, and then Trump came along in in twenty sixteen and ran sort of a scorched earth campaign against the establishment. One of the features of the establishment is this respect for free enterprise, um, the, the Republican establishment. So now some of the, and you mentioned some of these in your explanation of how the how the right is getting away from this, but some of the um, the national conservatives, new right, you know, they criticize what they call market absolutism, and they say that maybe the market approach was too weak uh, to stop the power of the left from dominating American culture. Um, that you see, um, you know, corporate America going ro- woke. They have, you know, they, they critique big tech censoring people. And, and basically they think you need to be more aggressive with, with political power in order to save the country from this. You need the government to do more to protect traditional families and to, to bring back American manufacturing. Um, so do, do you think that, um, so kind of getting into the causes of, of why this is, this this shift is happening. Do you think it's part of, partly because of a failure of market capitalism itself that causes shift? Maybe like what happened at the financial crisis. Um, maybe big businesses becoming too too strong as an interest group. So you you see more of crony capitalism or or uh, uh, 
manipulation of, of the market by big businesses? Or, or how, do, how else would you explain um, this move away from free markets uh, by the right? Well, on the right, the chief concern is whether the market ceased to create um, avenues to a middle-class standard of living uh, for those without a college education um, to um, perhaps over uh, simplify it. Uh, and that's a result of um, the erosion of manufacturing employment uh, in the United States uh, and a reduction in relative wages paid for uh, construction uh, labor and uh, other uh, skilled um, labor categories that don't require a uh, college uh, education. Um, there is, um, in the churn of a market, uh, there will be people that will be um, disadvantaged um, by uh, the changes that occurred. I think that uh, attributing either of those to the failure of markets is misconstrued. Um, if you look at uh, manufacturing, manufacturing output in the United States has continued to increase. Uh, it's just that uh, due to primarily uh, technological advancement, um, there's fewer people that are needed to produce a, a greater amount of goods. It's been automation and computerization um, more than uh, free trade. Um, so you, I, I think you had the opportunity to um, that it's misplaced to say that it is free trade policies that resulted in the reduction of manufacturing as a pathway to middle class for uh, Americans without a college education. On uh, labor, uh, on uh, construction labor, it was mostly um, immigration and, and largely illegal immigration. Uh, it used to be in the Phoenix market area that uh, construction uh, labor uh, paid above average wages. Um, that shifted uh, as more and more of the workforce uh, became uh, immigrant and, and illegal. I don't think that the answer is to substitute um, uh, the judgment uh, of politicians and bureaucrats as to how to allocate capital. And it's foolish for conservatives of any stripe uh, to believe that in a contest uh, to harness the power of the government, that conservatives will beat liberals. Um, that's, that's what liberals exist and believe in. Um, and, and so I, I think if you're going to say, and, and that's basically what the new right is saying, we, we want this powerful state, we just want us to run it uh, rather than uh, those on the left. Uh, and uh, that's, uh, in my judgment, always a losing game uh, for those on the right to believe that they can uh, use uh, and seize government and use its power um, uh, more effectively and in a way that attracts more popular support than the left. The history doesn't um, support that. So, so do you think then... Politically, then, is there any? How, how do you speak if you're a conservative, free market 
conservative, how do you speak to those people that um, are feeling left out by the the current forces of of the market economy? Because it's you know I think maybe those conditions would have been right for a populist you know figure on the right, and maybe maybe the right is is um, maybe it's more advantageous to to step in there and and blame. Um, you know, the elites for that or, or to scapegoat or, or, you know, and then Trump just kind of, I think he kind of altered the, the entire moral and epistemic sort of um, structure of, of the entire Republican party. But what, what would, I guess, what would have been uh, a, a free market message that maybe could have won or done better now or back then uh, politically to, to address the, those problems? I think it's to help people um, develop the skills uh, for which there is a market demand. And, and you talked about uh, George W. Bush um, and his big government conservatism. Um, much of what he tried to do, I thoroughly disagreed with. Uh, but there are um, probably a baker's dozen or more uh, federal programs uh, that are intended to provide job training assistance uh, to people so that they can uh, make their way on their own uh, in the economy that the free market produces. Um, Bush uh, proposed to consolidate um, a, an awful lot of those into an individual grant, a training grant that people could decide for themselves um, what, what jobs that the economy is actually producing uh, that um, they want to pursue and then use their grant money to get the, get the training to be able to um, perform uh, those jobs and, and obtain those jobs. Um, so that's the sort of thing that I think uh, if you want to have a government program to help people um, substitute uh, for uh, the declining traditional ways for lower, lower middle class Americans to move into the middle class. Um, that's the sort of thing I think you would be uh, looking at. And, and it's, it's got a lot of um, b b the way it was going to be structured. Uh, it wouldn't be government tells you, here's the, here's the training that we offer. You would be able to use your money, your, your grant, uh, in order to customize a program for yourself. And, and that's the sort of thing that I think might actually be helpful as opposed to saying, gee, we're going to try to turn off the market dynamics, uh, which is uh, reduced manufacturing employment in the United States. And, and it is coming back to us to a certain extent. So these things have some ebb and flows uh, to them, but the notion that government can cause an ebb or flow as it wants uh, and supersede markets or more effectively allocate capital, I think has been pretty universally disproved. And it's kind of disappointing for the right to be now adopting failed policies of the left. What about, I didn't, didn't Marco Rubio have some proposal for like family, uh, like, like, credits either tax credits or direct uh direct support for like um child care or something like that was was is that something that you think could be a part of like okay government 
stepping in a little bit to help um, cushion that those kind of costs that can be very difficult for um, and very expensive for working class families. Well, we've always in in this country we've kind of passed the point of saying that that it's up for discussion as to whether the government is going to provide a welfare safety net. So one can argue about what that welfare safety net should consist of. Rubio has been in, uh, who's one of the critics on the right uh, of um, markets. Uh, he He's big on supporting families as opposed to individuals. So he, that's part of sort of the social right um, element to this debate and discussion. Uh, I would be more inclined to do it on an individual basis and to keep the government out of uh, the question of whether people ought to have children are rewarding or punishing people for having children. I think that should be a private choice. Uh, but to the extent we want to ensure that nobody falls below a particular standard of living, um, we can debate uh, what is the best approach to, to doing that. I've always um, found uh, Milton Friedman's uh, negative income tax is the most efficient way and, and most respectful of individual choice way of providing that uh, safety net uh for, for the government, but one can have that argument. And I wouldn't say that, that what Rubio proposes in terms of industrial policy is a violation of free market principles. And I think will result in less opportunity for the people that he's trying to help over time. I wouldn't say the same thing about his proposals to increase government assistance uh, to families. Um, that's, that's in a different category and it's more into the social welfare category and it doesn't necessarily interfere with the operations of a market that that kind of proposal doesn't isn't government allocating capital uh, in the private market yeah one more one more couple points here on the on the Republican side uh, before I want to get into a little bit of the dynamics on the on the Democrat side too. I think it's just so interesting some of these some of these ideas that would typically be like if if the if the new right or the populist right was like a healthy rational party they would be you'd hear more about maybe these kinds of debate points um but it just seems like so much of it so much of what you hear from that side like from from like a Kerry Lake is is just weird, crazy stuff about, you know, the election being rigged and I, sh I should be the rightful governor. And, and it's just so, <laughs> it's just so exhausting that, that, that the issues are not the focus right now in our, our um, in our political system. Um, but the other specific thing that I hear from multiple candidates, Trump, um, DeSantis running for president right now, is that <clears throat> they want to reduce, this is kind of maybe in line with limiting the government, um, but it's maybe a little extreme. I just want to know your your take is that they want to like kind of reduce or slash the federal bureaucracy by firing a bunch of employees who work there, 
maybe replacing them with conservatives. You also see some calls for getting rid of entire departments, like like not just the Department of Education, but the IRS and the FBI. Is that is that in line with limited government conservatism, or how do you how do you view that kind of thing? It it's not. It doesn't have the same motivation. So it, it is as as you described it. Uh, grievance politics. It's trying to stir up resentment and uh, capitalize politically on um, people's uh, beliefs and, and in trying to inculcate some some beliefs that are not very well grounded in in fact. Um, I mean, I believe that, that the federal government's too big. I'd get rid of um, some uh, agencies. I, I think probably civil service protection uh, extends uh, too deep and too far. All those things you could have responsible discussions about. Um, but uh, it does need to be motivated by trying to create the political economy that best serves the American people. Uh, and uh, that is not the motivation uh, that's driving the discussion by these people. It, it is um, pure grievance politics and populist uh, demagoguing. Um, and it's part of what's one of the reasons why the Republican Party is no longer a political vehicle and vessel. Uh, for the traditional Buckley, Reagan, small government, free market conservatives. Um, e even when they advocate some things that might have some merit, for example, civil service reform, uh, it, is, um, it, it isn't a proposal to make the federal government work better for the American people and be more responsible to the political leadership that the people decide. Uh, it is to kick some liberal butt uh, and uh, in replace the deep state allegedly from the left with a deep state from the right. Uh, and, and that's just, it, it, it's hard. It's hard to get beyond that uh malevolent motivation uh, and the destructive policy, politics behind it uh, in order to get to the substance of some of the policy ideas, which um, even those that I disagree with are uh, worth debating and discussing. Uh, they're uninterested in having a debate and discussion about those things. Um, they're interested in using it to whip up um, populist resentment uh, in order to uh, capitalize on it politically. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way to put it. That's um, sad, but the reality right now, I think that's like, for for a lot of people. I think that's why it's why it's so exhausting. It's like, wait, why aren't we talking about? repealing and replacing Obamacare anymore. Like what, <laughs> where, what happened to that? Like, um, what are we talking about now? Um, uh, so let's, let's transition and, and, and 
so you think that you know with with all that happening on the right and then the Republican Party, you would think that a Democratic Party would um, try to take advantage of that and make it themselves a little bit bigger, bigger tent, and and to try to be um, bringing in some of those you know more conservative free market types, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem to be the case. Um, and one of the, one of the interesting topics that you guys brought up on the, on, on the podcast with Paul Johnson was this, uh, differentiating between, um, pro business being pro business and being pro free enterprise. And one, one example, and you talked, talked about how businesses, you know, they're just, inter, they're an interest group just like any other. And just by being pro-business doesn't mean you're pro-free pro enterprise. An example that you've written about and you've talked about on that on that podcast was um, about you know Kirsten Cinema, who was a Democrat. Um, she um, you credit her for saving private investment in in the economy uh, and saving the economy from a recession by blocking uh, a tax increase on corporations at a at a vulnerable time in the economy. But you, but you say she's not necessarily conservative, um, but but she's a she was a pro business Democrat. Now, maybe you call her a pro business independent. Is there any evidence of, you know, a sign for respect from the free market uh, principles among among Democrats um, here in Arizona or nationally, uh, or is it is it fair to say that they're that they're the party of of of, of bigger government control and and moving even towards democratic socialism the 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 pro-business element uh within the democratic party uh has shrunk considerably um the democratic party used to have a fairly large contingent of people that i would describe as pro-business but not necessarily um pro-free enterprise um and I mean, businesses uh, ask for subsidies and they ask for market protection and a variety of different things. Uh, and there have been large factions within both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party who supported those um, because they wanted to be pro-business. Uh, the uh, pro-business can constituency within the Democratic Party and the Republican Party has shrunk. It's not, it's not very prominent in either party. The support for free enterprise, which used to characterize the Republican Party, um, has shrunk. Uh, and so um, there's really not a much of a political voice for what I regard and other traditional conservatives would regard as uh, the uh, elements of political economy that uh, will best serve the American people today, and particularly uh, in the future, because that's what the investment of capital is all about. It's about deciding what our future is going to be. Um, Hayek called it a fatal conceit to believe that politicians and bureaucrats can more productively and intelligently deploy capital than markets can. Uh, and that fatal conceit uh, now is in the driver's seat of both of our major political parties. Um, and the Republican Party, I think, was right to jettison uh, its uh, 
it's um, instinctive pro-business sentiment, uh, which isn't necessarily the same thing as free enterprise uh, sentiment. Um, But unfortunately, they jettisoned the support for the free enterprise system at the same time that they were jettisoning their reflexive support for um, whatever the business community defined as in its uh, self-interest. So I think we are at a highly unfortunate point in our politics where there is neither political party that's dedicated to the elements of political economy that best serve the American people and uh, provide the best chance for expanding opportunity for all Americans. Do you think there's any any wiggle room for a creative or um, ambitious Democrat to sort of try to make some of those arguments in the in the Democratic Party? Like, is it even possible to try to fight that um, front and maybe expand the um, the tenth Democratic Party? I mean, the, the, there's the typical response from a from a from a liberal democrat might be on the economic side like okay we need higher minimum wage we need stronger union control we need to tax the rich to to pay for more social programs then we need like rent control to keep um to keep um prices down for for um for housing but you did see like just in the arizona legislative session this this past time you did see democrats um some Democrats going to bat for that tamale bill, which would have been like a deregulation of, of, of a small sector of, of the economy. You did see some Democrats um, supporting the, um, the housing bill that we talked about that would have increased um, build building of housing, which might, which might tell you that, you know, there's at least a recognition that, you know, there's a role of supply, um, and, and demand with, with bringing prices down is, I mean, is there any, is there any argument that could be made? Is there any Democrat that could pull that off, um, to make some free market arguments in, in saying that it could, it could benefit, um, their constituents? Well, I, I don't think the democratic party has abandoned support, uh, for a, uh, primarily market-driven economy. Uh, they just uh, want to have more government control of the direction of some capital in- investment, such as the um, subsidization of uh, green energy, subsidization of chip, uh, computer chip manufacturing, and they favor a heavily regulated market economy. But I don't believe that they've abandoned support uh, for um, having primarily a, a market-driven um, economy. Uh, if there were a open democratic primary, if Joe Biden had not run for re-election and if the party hadn't acquiesced uh, in his uh, decision, uh, then I think there are some democratic governors uh, who have um, a greater respect and advocacy um, for uh, markets um, that could have made for a very interesting democratic primary and uh, to see where the democratic party might stand on on creating an alternative 
um, that might be temporarily accept, more acceptable uh, to some of us um, traditional small market free enterprise uh, conservatives to the populist grievance politics that uh, now dominates the Republican Party. But we're, we're not going to have <laughs> that, oppor that opportunity. And, and, and I think this illustrates the fact that our, our two-party uh, control of our politics uh, and, and, and the primary, uh, primary election political system um, isn't offering wide enough avenues for the diversity of candidates that will best serve uh, the country. And, and, and I think that the monopoly that our two party, our, our current two parties have is, is one of our chief political challenges and something that we, we need to eliminate the grip of the party activists on both sides. Uh, in having exclusivity and deciding um, who are the, our choices um, in, a, in a general election. Um, so that's sort of going way away from where we uh, began the discussion, but I do think that, that there are Democrats that could make that case if, if you they, they'd have difficulty surviving in the current two-party system. Yeah. But uh, in a more wide-open primary election uh, process uh, might indeed um, be where most people, a uh, majority of the electorate, would uh, prefer to land. Yeah, I would I would love to hear more opinions and more have more candidates um, running and making a, a wider variety of cases, you know, on on healthcare, on, you know, education here in Arizona. I mean, there's all kinds of um, angles and arguments uh, about about the the balance between, you know, what markets provide or what the role of the government should be. And um, but we'll see if those cases get made. There's also three, we're recording this on a Sunday, in three days on Wednesday, there is going to be a Republican presidential debate showcase are you going to watch are you going to watch that debate and is there one of do you prefer or have you been impressed by any of the candidates that will be on that stage um i i, I don't know whether i'm going to watch it i have a hard time um listening to any of our politicians today uh, it, it's just so much nonsense uh, and thin gruel uh, and uh, irritating caricatures uh, of uh, of what the true choices are uh, facing the country. So I will have a hard time sitting through <laughs> through that. I have been intrigued, and I'd be you you actually kind of follow this more closely than than I do, but I've been intrigued by um, Chris Christie, who, who is one of the few candidates that is openly taking on Trump, although I have a hard time forgiving him for uh, his syncophancy uh, 
in the after the 2016 election, but he's also sort of interesting on the issues. Um, he's he's not a one-trick pony. He's not just an anti-Trump candidate, uh, and um, I'm I don't know that he'll be able to thread his way to a larger notice. He is gaining some traction in New Hampshire. Um, I don't know whether he can parlay that into a national um, campaign or or not, but. Um, right now, I think he's the most in, he's the most intriguing person in the race. The other person that has always intrigued me is Tim Scott, because he's the only one running uh, as sort of the optimistic Reagan-esque um, old-style uh, Republican. Um, and so, if he could get get some traction, uh, that might start to get us to a post post-Trump. Um, era in the Republican Party, um, which both the party and the country badly need. Yeah, yeah. So, what well, what about you? Are you interested well, in intrigued by any of them? Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna watch. I'm gonna watch it. I'm. I'm. I'm very interested with the, especially the debate over foreign policy, um, and and, um, and and the support for Ukraine. I think that's kind of a dividing, uh, dividing line between you know, some of the traditional conservatives and, and some of the new right as well. Um, but yeah, I appreciate what Chris Christie's doing, just speaking blunt honesty about uh, the situation. I used to, I think I used to, even though I didn't like the way that DeSantis was conducting his campaign, his strategy was to to out, basically out populist uh, Trump from the right. I appreciate, I, I I didn't like that, but I, for for the early part of the campaign, I thought, well, maybe that's the only way you can you can beat Trump. But the more the campaign has gone on, it's just I'm almost like, why even pander to that anymore? Like it's not might as well. So I, I'm kind of finding myself just like go for it, Christy. You know, attack <laughs> attack everyone, attack DeSantis. Who I mean, I mean I, I don't know as much. I've kind of given up hope that anyone can actually beat Trump in, in the primary. I, mean, I didn't have much hope to begin with, but, but it, you know, if, if that's not going to happen, you know, the next best thing is you, is you, you know, speak blunt, honestly, and, and try uh, speak blunt honesty and, and just try to try to move the party back to sanity. So I think, I think Christie is the strongest advocate for that. I definitely see, you know, he's trying to, I like his message of trying to move us to be, you know, towards more, towards bigger things like, you know, healthcare and, and education and, and our role in the world. And rather than, you know, it seems like we're, we're so caught up in the tit for tat and the, and the brinksmanship, um, and the toxic dynamic. So I don't know. Um, but it'll be, it'll be interesting. <laughs> um, so uh, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Political Notebook podcast. Uh, you can find us on any podcasting app. Thank you.